the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. God, we see here how he values the sixth commandment. You know what's interesting? When I read, the Bible says, and perilous times shall come. And you expect to see some awful things in there. What's one of the things in the list? Disobedient to parents, right? That's what it says. That's how highly God values this. He looks at the breakdown of society and perilous times, things are bad. People don't obey their parents anymore. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. God brought the children of Israel out of their enslavement in Egypt and has provided for them throughout their journey to the land promised to their forefathers. God was now meeting with them on Mount Sinai, giving them His moral law. These were the Ten Commandments. The Israelites were afraid and sent Moses to intermediate between them and God. God is now going to start giving the civil law by which the Israelites would be governed. We join Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 21, verse 1. Moses has entered into the thick cloud of God's presence to mediate the covenant between God and Israel. God, we saw he spoke his moral law in the Ten Commandments, but now we move from God's moral laws to the civil laws that would govern the landscape of the nation. And these next few chapters serve as instructions to those judges that Moses appointed. Remember when his father-in-law came in and said, Moses, you're not doing this right. He said, Moses, you need to appoint groups of judges who can be over hundreds and thousands and tens so that only the most difficult matters come to you. So these are the instructions for these judges that Moses appointed to deal with the everyday disputes of the people. That's important to understand because these civil laws, therefore, do not govern Christian life. Maybe you've, you, you've heard or talked to an atheist or talked to someone who'd, who's not a Christian, who's critical, and they say, oh yeah, the Bible endorses slavery. We're going to cover that tonight. Bible does not endorse slavery. God was governing how relationships would work, business relationships would work in a culture that thought that was okay. He was not giving moral law here, but civil law to govern Israeli society. We do not go by that. This is not how we live. We don't have a national government as Christians. Jesus is our king, but his kingdom is not now of this world. We read that in John eighteen thirty six in our scripture reading. His kingdom is in our hearts. It's a kingdom of truth, and whoever follows truth is a part of that kingdom. The Bible says we're a a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a a, a people that have been chosen out to be separate and different. But we don't live by these rules. These were the laws to govern Israeli society. Now, God calls them judgments here. The word judgments there simply means legal rights. So this is Israel's Bill of Rights, and it starts by addressing dependents. Now, these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. So here we start off with the rights of male servants. Now, it mentions here that 
if you buy a Hebrew servant, and that is an unfortunate translation. Every Israelite was born free. So there, when we talk about buying and selling a person, it was not the same as slavery. We understood it in our culture's past or as the world understands it in some cultures today. The word here, buy, just means to acquire. Now, if you acquire a Hebrew servant, six years shall he serve. Well, why would you acquire a Hebrew servant? Well, a Hebrew might sell himself. You would not purchase him because he was just a slave and that's how it was. He would sell himself as a servant for two reasons. Through poverty, Leviticus 25, 39 explains that. Or through crime. If you were a criminal and you could not pay back the heavy restitution required, then you could sell yourself to pay off your debt. So, and that's from Exodus 22.3, which we'll get to later tonight, God willing. So Leviticus 25.39 through poverty or Exodus 22.3 through crime. In both cases, if you could not pay your debts, you could work them off. That's what's being referred to here. The Israelites were not allowed to have slaves in the same way that we understand slavery. And so it says here and explains that if you were to acquire a Hebrew servant, if a Hebrew servant through poverty or crime, then six years shall he serve. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. The debt is clear. The Bible is clear that they were never to have indefinite servants. God never endorses slavery, never anywhere in Scripture. And whether or not you'd paid off your debt through your work, every servant was released from their servitude and their debt after six years of labor. The seventh year, they would go out free. There's another year when they would go out free. It's called the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, that would be canceled as well. Now, it's interesting because if someone came to you and it was only one year to the year of Jubilee and said, listen, I can't pay my debt. Can I be a servant? You can go, no way, man. You only got one year. He said you had to take the year and you had to trust that God would cut, you know, provide for the loss. That's how it was. So again, we see the heart of God here that yes, that things are different than they were in our society, but God is not for slavery at all. Instead of endorsing slavery, this shows that God is protecting impoverished people or those who make poor decisions to commit a crime from slavery, not endorsing slavery. Now, verse 3 says, if he came in by himself, in other words, he was a single guy, came in by himself, well, then he will go out by himself. If he were married, so if he is married, had a wife and kids, and he indentured himself, then him and his wife would go out with him. If his master, though, gave him a wife when he was serving this time, and she has borne him sons or daughters, well, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. In other words, they got to, it's not that they couldn't have him, they just need to complete their work. They would need to finish it up. They didn't just get to go free because, well, he got married to one of the other servants that he had that owed a debt. That's not how that worked. So they would stay there until their work was done. Now, if he said to himself, you know what? I have a problem staying away from a life of crime or I keep getting into debt. And he thinks to himself, you know what? If, he shall, if the servant shall plainly say, and the, the phrase there plainly means not under coercion or pressure, but of a free will decision. If he decides, you know what? I love my master. I love my wife. I love my kids. I don't want to go out by myself free. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges and he shall also bring him to the door, that's of his house, or under the doorpost of his house. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. He'd take a needle and pierce his ear, and he'd wear an earring. And that would signify that he would be a willing bond slave for the rest of his life. So it was of his choice. Now, in a perfect world, there would be no poverty or crime. But we live in a fallen world. 
And the problem with letting every poor person or criminal off the hook concerning their debts or their crimes is that it might result in the person who's owed money now becoming impoverished. And that's not right. That's not fair. That's not the way that God would set up his rules. They have rights too. And so as such, the servant had a choice to make. If the one he served gave him a good life while he was in service, he could choose to go out free and wait till they finish their service as well. Or he could decide, you know what? This is a pretty good life. He takes care of me. I'm going to stay here. And so if that was his choice, then it says that he would be brought unto the judges. The word there is Elohim. So, of course, that also is the word for God. Sometimes it's used of judges. Here, I believe it would be you would be taken before the the tabernacle where God would be, and then you would make this commitment sealed before God as your free will choice. That way everyone would know it was not by coercion because you'd say it before God himself. He also then, after he makes that vow to God, I want to do this on my own free will. Then you would go to the master, your master's house. He would put the hole in your ear and he'd put an earring in your ear. And that earring would signify that you were a willing bond slave forever. The reason they would do it to the door of the house, that's where they would do it. You can do it anywhere. But the reason they would do it there was to symbolize that the man's life would be bound to his master's house forever. Now, What's interesting about this, and we're going to do this all throughout our coverage of the laws. We're going to say, how does this point to Jesus? Well, it's interesting because this is the type of servant that Paul refers to when he calls himself a bond slave of Jesus Christ. It's the same word. It's what he refers to himself as. I'm a bond slave of Jesus Christ. I'm a willing slave or servant of Jesus. You know, it's like Paul said, I don't want to live free for myself. I don't want to live free for myself. You know, my master loves me and he takes care of me and I give my life to him forever. And I would ask you, have you done that with Jesus? He's a good master, isn't he? He takes care of us. He's given us good things and he's a, he, it's a great place to be. I tend to get in trouble on my own. So I want to be a bond slave for Jesus Christ. This also points forward to Jesus himself. Turn to Psalm 40 with me. It's really cool stuff here. We won't always find this, but there will be times we'll find some really cool ways that this is fulfilled in Christ. Now to sum up, Psalm 40 is a messianic psalm. The book of Hebrews in particular quotes extensively from it as being fulfilled in Jesus. And in verse 6, Jesus utters these words. We know it from Hebrews. He says, sacrifice and offering. That's not what you want, Father. But my ear have you opened, the King James says. It literally means pierced. Mine ear have you pierced. Burn offering and sin offering you have not required, but then said I, lo, I come, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. And that makes 100% sense, because what did Jesus say he came to do? His own will? The will of my Father. He says, everything I say, I say what? I don't say anything unless the Father tells me to, right? Jesus was that willing bond slave. He was the willing bond slave as our example of what a godly man is, one that his life is yielded to the Lord. Isn't that cool? Well, let's go back to Exodus 21, verse 7. Now, if a man should sell his daughter to me, a maidservant. So now we are dealing with um, the rights of female servants. This was just for male servants. Now it's female servants. If a man should sell his daughter to be a maidservant, she shall not go out as the men's servants. So here is a little bit different dynamic. You have to realize, ladies, that the culture was different back then. It's not like you just went and got a job. They call the oldest profession, you know, in the world that ladies would use. That was the only profession they had back then. You did not, could not earn a living on your own because your living was usually directly tied to the property and the idea of property being passed on to a male 
male child. So if you had no male to run the family, then you didn't get the property. It usually reverted to someone else. And whether they took good care of you or not, well, depended on how much they wanted to follow the Lord or not. It was a very vulnerable position to be in if you were just let go. Now, very often, this daughter given as a servant would be given off, not just as a servant, but be given in marriage to pay off the debt. For example, you would normally come if you were going to want to marry a young lady, you would have to bring a dowry offering. And that would be kind of like alimony in advance. In case you did wrong by her, then serious, that's exactly what it was. And so that if you did wrong by my daughter, I can, I have financial uh, compensation to take care of her for the rest of her life since other people won't want her since you had her and rejected her. So it was alimony in advance. In this case, you know, if she were given in marriage and dad got the money and stuff and she were just to let go free, she would have nothing. I mean, he wouldn't have to give her a dime because he already gave the money to the father. So in this case, of course, because the dowry would be, she's working it off for dad. So there would be no money to take care of her. So you can't just let her go is what the Lord says here. A woman in that culture could not just go free at the end of seven years because she would have no means to provide for herself. Now that puts the man who is owed the debt in a bit of a conundrum. What if he doesn't want to marry her after she's been serving in the house for a period of time? Maybe she's not a good cook. Maybe, you know, she's just a mean lady. I don't know. Is he forced to marry her just to settle a debt? Well, verse 8 explains, well, if she please not her master who has betrothed her to himself, well, then shall he let her be redeemed. In other words, someone else could offer the dowry money to pay him, to pay off the debt that was owed that she was contracted to marry this guy in the first place. And again, ladies, I'm not saying that was right. I'm just saying that's how the culture was, all right? You guys are much more better today in your position and freedom. So someone else might pay the debt off to marry her, but only if they're an Israelite. Let's keep reading. It says, then shall he let her be redeemed, but to sell her to a strange nation, he shall have no power, seeing he has dealt deceitfully with her. And that's interesting. He says, listen, you're not going to give her to other nations who have different rules for the marriage relationship. And God says, I'm not allow you to put her in a place where she might be mistreated. She must be cared for, and you need to guarantee that. So only an Israelite. Well, but what if she, he can't find any Israelites to ransom her? Well, then God says, tough. You shouldn't have made the deal in the first place then. That phrase, deal deceitfully, is the same as to commit adultery or to be unfaithful. And see, that's how seriously God takes promises even before marriage vows are made. When someone wants to get engaged, I tell them, this is a big deal. You need to understand that. It's a big deal. So the Jews understood that. That's why Joseph had to divorce Mary. Remember it says that he was minded to divorce her? Say, why would he need to divorce her? They're only engaged. They're not married yet. You had to get a legal divorce from engagement. Imagine if we had to do that these days. But they would have to get a legal divorce from engagement. So, you know, even though they weren't legal and married yet, that's why Joseph was thinking, I'll just divorce her privately, and then the engagement will be off. I think this shows us that God holds marriage in high esteem, and he calls us to be faithful to our commitments. You know, this guy is kind of a, you know, well, I don't like her because of this, this, and this. And you think, okay, well, that's fair, but that's not very nice. We do petty things when we're newly married, don't we? Those of you who have been married for a long time, we did kind of petty things when we first got married. Things that I got upset about. I remember there was one time Beverly threw the toast at me and I was really mad. We were having a fight and our toaster was a little energetic and I, was, I wasn't looking up and I was eating and the toast popped out, bounced off the little island and bounced onto the table. And I looked at it and we were having a fight and I said, why did you throw the toast at me? You know, and she said, I didn't throw the toast to you. We live happily ever after since then. 
be faithful to your commitments. That's what the Lord is saying here. Now, if he has betrothed her, verse 9, unto his son, then he shall deal with her after the manner of daughters. A daughter would be provided for always. So even if she and his son aren't married yet, the time is up or whatever it might be, he can't just let her go. He needs to take care of her as if she was his own daughter. Now, what if the son doesn't want to marry her or decides to marry somebody else? Verse 10. Well, if he take him another wife, for a son that is, her food, her clothing, and her duty of marriage, he shall not diminish. And verse 11, if he do not these three unto her, then she shall go out free without money. In other words, from that moment, she doesn't have to pay back any of the debt. She just gets to go back home and she's free to get married to whoever she will. God is not condoning polygamy here either. He's providing safeguards for this young woman when some buffoon decides to get around his responsibility. That's what God's doing. God is not endorsing polygamy. Now, you might be asking, wait a second, why would any woman want to be with a man in that situation? Why would she still want, you know, food and clothes and and conjugal duties, you know, at this point? Well, please remember that being a woman in that culture was very different than it is today. Some of you out there may understand a little bit of, of what I'm talking about, the difficulties of being abandoned by a husband. I'm fully aware of the fact that my wife gave up a lot to marry me. We decided together that we wanted her to stay home. That's not your choice. That's our choice. We wanted to raise our kids. We wanted her to be able to invest time in the kids. So she, had, she was a smart, intelligent person. She could have had a good career, but she decided to forego that so she could take care of our children. You know, she decided not to pursue her education so that she could take care of the children and give them an education. She made decisions to sacrifice those things. But I know, I'm fully aware that if I were to decide to just walk off or whatever, the position I leave her in, It would be very hard to take care of a family of four children when you're in a situation like that. Very hard. It'd be like starting life all over again. And women back then didn't have that option. You know, so she'd want to be provided for and have children that she could pass on her legacy to. And for those of you out there who are going through that struggle, my heart goes out to you. I know it's hard. I've counseled way too many single moms, you know, and they've got to all of a sudden start their life all over again. Many of them go back to school. They try to remake themselves, try to find a way to begin a career, you know, at, at sometimes as a middle-aged person where you're raising kids at the same time. It's not easy. I know very, very many hardworking single moms, and I tell you, I want to get a hold of their dads sometimes. I had a, a gentleman one time. He would whine all the time to me about his, his alimony, uh, about his child support, and I, I just I couldn't handle it. And I said, stop complaining. I said, you have a responsibility to help pay for those children. You fathered them, and you're not with them right now. So food, clothes, conjugal duties. If he violated that in any way, then she was a free woman. She can go back home to her family, and the debt is canceled. Verse 12. Now we get to the rights of all to life. It says, he that smites a man so that he die, he shall surely be put to death. General law. So capital punishment. If someone commits murder or kills someone, they should be put to death. Now there is an exception in verse 13 here for manslaughter. Now, if a man lies not in wait, but God delivers him into his hand, then I will appoint you a place whither he shall flee. The phrase there, lie in wait, means to hunt down with the intent to kill. In other words, if a dispute broke out and you took a life by mistake, it was manslaughter, similar to some of our laws, where there was no premeditation, no intent. You know, if that's the case, then God says, I will appoint him a place where he can flee to, and then you will not put him to death. Now, 
He doesn't explain what that is here. We're going to learn more about it later on in Leviticus. But God is going to set up cities of refuge where this person could flee to and have a fair trial instead of being the recipient of revenge killing. That was something that Israel learned from the Egyptians, unfortunately, and they were all into it. It's, it's still an Arab tradition today, unfortunately. Consequence for losing your temper and unintentionally killing somebody is that this person will have to live in that city for the rest of their life for their poor judgment. They would not be able to leave, so they couldn't go back home. They couldn't go back to their property. They had to stay in that city of refuge. And if they left that city of refuge and somebody caught them, they'd be put to death. So the idea is there are consequences. There's no exception for premeditated murder, though. Verse 14. But if a man come presumptuously, that comes from a word that means to cook. It means to plan out murder because of the boiling anger in your heart. He says, if you plan it out and you commit murder upon your neighbor to slay him with guile, with a premeditated act, He says, you shall take him from mine altar that he may die. In other words, there is no offering that one could bring to make up for this action and preserve one's life. He is to be killed for his crime. I understand that there are people that get frustrated with that. They think, really, the Bible is for capital punishment? Well, long before here, the Bible was for capital punishment in Genesis. That's a universal law. The Bible says, if man sheds blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And in the New Testament, we'll cover it next week in Romans 13, that government bears the responsibility to put murderers to death, to take care of these people. That's what the Bible says, to protect us in society from that. That is not our job, okay? That is not our job. The church got confused about that at a period of time. That's not our job. Now, in Israeli society, this is where he's giving the rules. So if you get beforehand the judge, and the judge determines, no, you premeditated this, then the death penalty would be the result. There were other crimes that were worthy of the death penalty as well. Verse 15, And he that smites his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He that steals a man and sells him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. And he that curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Now, parents, don't get any ideas of threatening your kids. These were civil laws to govern Israeli society. We as Christians do not operate by these laws. But you might ask the question, man, that, that's heavy. But realize what is part of God's moral law? To honor your mother and father, right? That's a part of his moral law. God, we see here how he values the sixth commandment. You know what's interesting? When I read, the Bible says, in perilous times shall come. And you expect to see some awful things in there. What's one of the things in the list? Disobedient to parents, right? That's what it says. That's how highly God values this. He looks at the breakdown of society and perilous times, things are bad. People don't obey their parents anymore. One of the things I explained to my children, I say to them, I said, guys, you don't have to agree with me, but there's a great blessing when you honor and obey your mom and dad. There's a huge blessing that comes with that. If you're a young person here today, particularly, you know, even if you're a little bit older and you're living at home, honor your mom and dad because God's going to bless you for that. I really believe that the Lord blessed me and Beverly because of the fact that we really tried to honor each of our parents through our dating relationship, through our engagement, until the time came to be when we said, I do, and we severed those bonds, and now we became our own family unit uh, with Christ as our head. I really believe that a lot of the blessing we've experienced is because we honored our our folks in in our lives. And I I can promise you that if you do that, God will bless you too because the word says so. I may be saying, well, why is it that big of a deal? Well, let me ask you a question. Who who chose your parents? Really? Not you. And most of the time, not them. (laughs) Things were not always exactly planned out. God chooses our parents and not us. And so striking them would therefore be the equivalent of striking God. Cursing them would be the equivalent of cursing God. And so God says, no, no bueno, you got to deal with that. The other issue here it mentions in verse 16 is kidnapping. 
And it was when you were caught in the act or after the act. It didn't matter. It was punishable by death. I tell you, when I hear about kidnapping, my heart just breaks. I, I, it's very difficult. I remember I was watching on child abuse, kidnapping, all that stuff. It is very difficult for me to swallow. I have four beautiful children, and I can't even imagine if someone ever tried to do something to them. And the Lord looks very harshly upon those who would, who would steal life. And so the death penalty is the price here. We get to verse 18, and we continue forward with some addendums to the idea of injury. And we see rights of restitution for bodily injury. So not death now, but just bodily injury. Verse 18, and if men strive together, and one smite the another with a stone or with his fist, and he die not, but he keeps his bed, that phrase or keeps his bed means he's injured in some way. So if they're quawling, he doesn't die, but he's you know, down for the count for a few days. Well, it says here, if he gets up again and walks abroad upon his staff, if he, the injury heals with no permanent damage, he can go everywhere, he's fine. Well, then the Bible says there, he that smote him shall be quit or go unpunished. But he shall cause, it says, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall cause him to be thoroughly healed. So he has to make restitution for the loss of work time and any cost of recovery, medical costs, whatever. You had to pay for that. Again, that seems pretty fair to me. Sounds like a good law to have if you got a, a bill of rights here. So if you get in a fight and he's fine, then just go away and let bygones be bygones. On the other hand, if he's injured in some way, well, then you, you know, you're going to have to pay a price when to help him recover from the injury and any loss of work in the meantime. Now, verse 20 and 21, he gives an addendum for servants, if that happens with servants. And if a man smite his servant or his maid with a rod, and he die under his hand, well, he shall surely be punished. The word there means vengeance shall be taken, the death penalty. So same rules for servants. I don't, it doesn't matter that they're working for you. If you kill him, then you're going to die because you took his life. But it says in verse 21, if he continues a day or two, or in other words, if he's just out of commission for a day or two, he shall not be punished for he is his money. So after a couple days, if he's ready to get up and he's fine, he has no permanent injury, well then you're the one that lost it because he didn't, he didn't work for a couple days. Now, there are those that read this, the word money here, and they have a big problem with God. How can a person be someone else's money? But remember a few things. Servitude in Israel was only allowed due to owed debt or crimes committed. So if you ended up losing a worker for a few days because you injured him, God is basically saying, that's your own stupid fault. Those two days of loss of work, they count. That's your fault. The only reason they're your servant is to pay back the debt. So the loss of work is punishment enough. God is not saying here that people are ever property and therefore that their lives do not matter. Conversely, he's trying to protect these people. We don't live by the civil law given here to the Israelites, but the principles behind them are still important for us to consider what God values. God desires us to be honorable to all people, to serve one another, to honor our parents, to value all human life, and most importantly, to walk humbly with our God. We can do all of this through the power of God working in our lives, not legalistically, rather, because we want to be pleasing to God. While we are in this time of a global pandemic, do not be afraid to call and ask for assistance or for prayer. Our office may be closed, but you can still reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. 
You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.